0: All right, I got a couple things we got to look at before we actually get into the text. Um, what's the theme of this conference? Okay, so no matter what I say, no matter what I have said, if anyone asks you what I said, what are you going to say? Independence. 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 That's been the, the messages of everything is <laughs> that you can say. Got That's all I want you to do. So if you have your, your counselors, your staff, anybody here comes up and says, Okay, do you know what the thing, the big idea of this conference is? What's Jeff been preaching on? You say? Yeah. Thank you. Very good. Also, I, I I know that there's been some discussion about ancient magic, so I thought I would fly in a highly specialized, highly trained theologian to shine some light, further light on that. Ethan, would you come up here, friend? Ancient magic. Ancient magic. What is that?
1: Okay. Ancient magic. It's actually uh, really simple. Um, ancient magic How is just.
0: Simple is ancient magic? Well, it's just
1: another way of saying ancient grace or timeless grace. God, before creation, had ordained to create you and you to love you. Is ancient magic.
0: Me. Do you have more to say that? Well, Do you want to preach the rest of the time? <laughs> Not the rest of
1: the time, but I do have one more thing to add.
0: Okay, go ahead. In in our uh,
1: in our chapter seventeen of John, uh, when I Jesus gone there yet. You haven't gone there? <laughs> uh, well he says he says glorify your son so that he may glorify you and how does he glorify the father well through giving us eternal life loving us perfectly when we didn't earn it he created us to love us
0: Okay, did everybody get a chance to do the um, what was the the the, the mousetrap thing? Okay. I, I watched some of it, my kids were well, one of my kids was watching some of it, but I heard something even more stunning than the little mousetrap thing that y'all were working on. And so I'm gonna bring another guest speaker down. Rolf, where are you? See he here? Oh man, come on, bud. Where is Rolf? So I'm gonna to have to tell the story. He, do you know the story? Okay, we're over there. I'm watching. He says, "You know, I used to live in a in a plantation area where there were a lot um, avocados." And he says, "Have you ever seen rats live on avocados? They're they're very big." So they had to have a rat trap, and they set it in their house, and they would snap. And at night, he heard one snap, but he was too lazy to get up and go check it at the time. So the next day. <laughs> He went to find that trap, and all that was left was the head. <laughs> Nobody knows where the body went. It's pretty creepy, isn't it? I thought, man, I, y'all have got to hear that story. Um, okay, so we've covered ancient grace. We've covered independence, Ralph's mouse trap or rat trap story. Do y'all want to hear a brother's story? Before we get into the text? Y'all know I have a brother, right? He's planting a church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, We were going to go, we are out of college. We are going to go on a three-month trip to share the gospel in Czechoslovakia, okay? Now, we are in Pittsburgh at my parents' house the night before we fly out to go. Got it? My parents' church are having a church picnic and a church softball game. And so Pete and I go to the outfield, and we get really bored because it's a church softball game. <laughs> Nobody's hitting any balls out in the outfield, right? And so I'm, I'm out there in center field. He's over there in right field. And next thing I know, I get hit in the head with this mound of mud. And I look over at him, and he's like, and I just brush him off Because we're at a church softball game My dad's out there, the elders are out there The pastor's out there And then, whop, I get hit again And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me And so I turn around And he's going Like that again I go back to the gate Because I am the big brother I am the leader I will show and give a model example To the younger whippersnapper over there Who's throwing mud at me, right? Two minutes later, right in the side of the head, right in my temple. Now it's in my eyes, and now I'm I'm, I'm just a little a little agitated. <laughs> and I turn to him, and he's going like this, and I go like this. Now my brother wrestled at Penn State, and I'm a wrestler as well. And in the middle of a church picnic <laughs> softball game, they're playing ball. We go charging each other and we start grappling in the middle of this field and every, they stop the game I'm not kidding, the pitcher turns around both teams stop and they're now watching and we are going at it so, <laughs> now there's this is the best part though, you know he thinks he's so big and studly because he wrestled at Penn State right so I go to throw him and it, was, it rained, and that's why the mud was everywhere. But when I wanted to throw him, I missed, and I grabbed his head, and I pulled it right down to my knee.
1: Oh. Bit,
0: his teeth went right through the bottom. Right. So this is the best part, though. This is the absolute best part, because all I was seeing was this. Now his lip is about this big. We had to go to the hospital to get it stitched. And we left the next day for our mission trip, and he couldn't talk. Uh. <laughs> uh, my name, Pete, he couldn't even say his name. So when we were, we were sharing Christ with college students, and they would ask him, what happened to you? And he'd be like, because he'd have to tell the story, and they couldn't understand half the words he said. But it, somehow it came down to my studly big brother, beat me. <laughs> Anyhow, I just, I hope this is taped, and I, I know he will listen to these tapes. So there, brother. <laughs> All right, my freshman year, and I told you that I grew up in Houston, right? We moved to Simsbury, Connecticut my freshman year. Uh, our family moved uh, from Houston, Texas, to Simsbury, Connecticut, and it was a huge, I can't even tell you the huge change it was in cultures for me. And I was a 15-year-old boy, and, and I can tell you it was a hard, hard change for me. And it was very difficult at my age to navigate all those changes of those cultures, uh, but there was one immediate positive that came out of this: a new world opened up to me, a new world that I absolutely fell in love with, and that was the world of wrestling. I was the downside was I was a 15-year-old who weighed 155 pounds, so I couldn't beat the 18-year-old who weighed 155 pounds. And I couldn't beat the 18-year-old who weighed 165 pounds. But I could beat the person who was at 185 pounds because there was no one there. So I wrestled at 155 pounds, I wrestled the 185 pound weight class. I wrestled men as a 15-year-old boy. Now here's what happened. I saw more lights and more gyms than anyone on the team. Well, maybe. I had a buddy who also weighed about 200, and he wrestled in the unlimited weight class, and that was usually 250 to 300-pound guys. Now, he and I, we had this one particular ref we could not stand because we hurt him so much. <coughs> Number one, he blew his whistle like a trumpet. <coughs> and then he had this way of reaching back. He'd get in your face like you're, you're, you're about ready to get pinned, and he would get like right near you. And he'd blow his whistle in your face. And then he'd bring his hand back like he was some Olympic champion. And he'd bring it way back. And then he would actually double tap the mat for your pin. Now, my buddy, uh, Bobby, he said he had nightmares. He used to wake up at night, and he'd find himself on his back, and he would flip over to his stomach because he was so embarrassed by all this, right? Well, you could have taken me to a gym, laid me on my back, taken off the blindfold and I could tell you where we were. (laughs) Uh, This is Connor, Jim. Yeah. Oh wait, we're at West Hartford. Oh, and this is Penny High School, right? My stellar record put me in what are called the rat tails in my weight class. This puts you in the last seed in the state tournament. And you wrestle on Friday night just to make the tournament on Saturday. But who do you wrestle? The number one seed. Now somehow, I don't know what you can call it. My wife probably knows more about it because she's lived with me so many years. I actually thought I was going to beat this guy. So all week, I'm getting ready, and I have it in my mind, I'm going to take this dude out. Number one seed, three-time state champion, no big deal, right? Well, all I remember is the first and last thing I remember is grabbing his tree trunk for a leg. And I thought, this is a big leg. (laughs) And then came the lights. (laughs) And then came the whistle. And then came the hand. And then came the double tap. Now, I can tell you this. I walked off that mat absolutely humiliated. I think shame is not too strong a word to describe it. I walked and I went to the far end of the gym. And I leaned my head against the wall. And I said to myself, and I said it out loud, I will never, ever, go through that again. Because the words that were going in my head was, Hatton, you're a failure. Hatton, you're a loser. And I said, this will never happen again. I'm done. I quit wrestling. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever, ever, in your gut, wanted to quit God. If you have, this passage is for you. If you haven't, file this one away and pull it out when it does happen to you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to read John 17, b through 16. <coughs> Remember, we uh, we picked, we ended with you're no longer in the world, but you're in the world. I'm coming to you. Now we get the petition. Remember, we had the power, the grounds of the prayer. Here's the actual prayer. So we're looking at the actual prayer now. Here it goes. You ready? Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. Please be seated. So God, we, um, we have spent some time together, and we ask that you would shine on the page. We're asking you, Jesus, to actually give and grant this prayer, that we would know you. That you would give us, Holy Spirit, clarity in our mind and you would make it real in our heart. All to the wonder, all to the the incredible exaltation of your name. So, oh Lord, fill us with your spirit now and grant it, Lord, grant it. Amen. Alright, so this is traditionally called what? Yes, the high priestly prayer. And you now know the structure, don't you? Verses 1-5, through what's Jesus doing? Praying for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. Verses 20 through 27, Jesus prays for who? Us. You've got this passage. You don't need me. It's over. We're done. All right? I want you to find 11b through 19 in your Bible. This is the content of Jesus' prayer. This is what Jesus is praying for for you. This is the passion and the heartbeat of Jesus for you. This is what Jesus prays to God for you for. All right? It's the deepest movements of his heart towards what he wants to see happen in your life. Here it is. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Is this the prayer you expected him to pray about you and for you? Is this the prayer that you thought Man, what is the passion of his heart for me? Holy Father, keep them in your name. How does this strike you? How does this prayer move you? What does this prayer do to you? I want you to look at the phrase, Holy Father. This is an incredibly rare phrase in the Bible. Incredibly rare. In fact, it only happens here in the Gospel of John and then maybe two or three other places in the, in the New Testament. It brings together two clashing worlds. I want you to think of two clashing realities coming together in that that phrase, Holy Father. In holy, you have what's called God's otherness. You have this incomparableness. Everything about him is incomparable. Everything about him is different and other. He's not like you and me. Thank God he's not like us. Part of our problem, part of your problem, is you actually think God is like you or like your mom or like your dad or like your sister or like your friends and that hurts you God is other he's different you can't grab a category and say he is like there's a vast gulf called the sea of glass that separates the throne from the rest of creation and revelation and the sea of glass separates all from how great God is No one can cross that sea. Then you have uh, Father. So you have Holy pointing to the distance from us, or the awe. And then you have this Father, which is incredibly near, isn't it? I mean, Holy is like, He's out there, He's distant. Father is now, He's near, He's actually in your face. Personal, intimate. Jesus' prayer is doing this to you and me right now. He wants to push awe into your life and wants to push intimacy into your life at the same time. Knowing God is knowing God with awe and knowing God with intimacy. You can know if you're knowing God, if you know the shepherd, if awe starts expanding and taking over the unreached areas of your life and if intimacy starts going to the 1040 window areas of your life. You and I all have unreached areas in our lives where the gospel has yet to go. And the gospel needs to go to those areas of our heart and needs to go to those areas of our life that have not been reached by the gospel. They're just as unreached as any unreached area of the world. So if the gospel goes to those areas, you will grow in awe and you will grow in intimacy. So let's start with all, shall we? Look at, again at 11b. Find the main <coughs> verb. Because remember, I, I'm a grammar geek. Holy Father, keep them in your name. What's the main verb? There we go. So underline it. It's a great thing to do in your Bible. You've got pencils, pens. One of the things you want to do, and you, you want to just kind of have a visual, if you're a visual learner, find main verbs, main actions, main events. Just underline them. It's a good way to just kind of catch yourself and see the flow of the passage. So here you got, keep them in your name. Keep broadly speaking. What is that? It's a shepherding word. So it's a a comprehensive word encompassing everything that goes on with shepherding. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd takes on his responsibility your well-being. Protect, provide, right? Specifically, this word, though, is narrowed. It has a specific meaning in the original language, and here it is. To cause you to hold on to something so you don't give it up. So you don't quit. Holy Father, keep them in your name in such a way that they never, ever, ever quit. Give up. No matter what happens in life, No matter how bad it gets. You know, there's enough bad stuff inside of us that if you and I were to get a glimpse of it now, it would scare you to death. So no matter when that stuff comes out, Holy Father, keep them so they don't quit. No matter when the bad stuff that's not coming out of you, but it's actually coming at you, hurtful, harmful relationships, painful situations and circumstances, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them holding your name so they don't quit. Notice where Jesus is praying God keeps you. It's a specific location, isn't it? Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus is basically saying this. Holy Father, keep them in the safest place on the planet. The name of God. If Jonathan Edwards was here, you know what he'd say? He'd say this. He'd say, If God is the sun, his name is the rays of the sun reaching you with light and life. Jesus is praying God keeps you in the light and the life, the wonder and the worth, the words and the work of God himself. The safest place on the planet. Don't miss the special awe, though, in this passage. Notice that God keeps you. You don't keep you. God keeps you. You don't keep you. When you get that God keeps you and you don't keep you, you know what happens in your life? (laughs) Awe. When you and I get that God keeps me, and I don't keep me, awe starts healing your heart. When you get deep in your bones that God keeps you, you don't keep you, awe pushes security into your life. When you get that God keeps you and you don't keep you, energy energizes your life. Passion fills your life. When awe is missing in your life, you know what happens? Exhaustion. When we don't have awe, you know what takes its place? It's not that, that awe, when it goes, that, that nothing else goes there. When awe leaves us, exhaustion takes its place. Why? Why? Because it's exhausting to try to keep your own life. It's exhausting to try to figure your own life out. I mean, Jeremiah, the prophet, comes up and says, Look, the heart is so deceptively wicked, above all things, who can know it? Certainly not you and me. And many of you spin your wheels continuously trying to figure yourself out, and you're exhausted. It's exhausting to try to fix your own life. It's exhausting to try to control and change your own life. It's exhausting to try to control your GPA. It's exhausting to try to control how your parents' expectations are and measuring up to them. It's exhausting to try to control what people think of you. It's exhausting to try to maintain a certain standard of performance to yourself, to God, to others. Man, that's exhausting. I'm getting exhausted just talking about it, right? Trying to keep our lives is not only exhausting, it makes you anxious. Why? Because we can't do it. You can't keep your own life. The work of keeping a life belongs to God alone. It's a God work. And you get exhausted and I get exhausted and then we get anxious. Deep anxiety. Like in the core of your being. Because you're unable to keep your life. And when that happens you try to carry your own burdens and you can't bear the weight of your own life because it's too big. You can't carry the burden of trying to be God in your life. It can't happen. So no wonder deep into the core of humanity is an irrepressible, inescapable core anxiety. We all just kind of live and surround ourselves and try to fix it with other things. We were made to unload our burdens of another, not to carry our own. Now, Jesus illustrates this with Judas. Did you see verse 12? That was kind of a disturbing verse right in the middle of something I was really encouraged about, right? I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Now, this is very, very important. This is not talking about Judas' destination. This is talking about Judas' character. Judas' character is a son of destruction. It's the character of a life that's committed to self-keeping. It's the character of a life that's committed to trying to be its own shepherd. It's the character of a life that's trying to save himself. Deal with life on his own. Because remember, we're incapable. We're not God. We can't carry the burden of our own life. And so what happens is everything breaks down. You break down. Your relationships break down. Personally, emotionally, you break down. You can't carry the burden of your life. You can't keep your life. Self-keeping always leads to breakdown. Son of destruction. God keeps you. You don't keep you. Awe gets it. <clears throat> now, there's a struggle that goes with awe, isn't there? There's a struggle that goes with God's holiness. There's a struggle that goes with His majesty. There's a struggle that goes with His awe, His transcendence, His bigness. What's the struggle? The struggle is will He? there's a struggle when you understand that God is the one that keeps your life and the deepest struggle that you and I will go through is is he going to keep mine? I get that he'll keep a life. I get that he keeps my brother's life. I get that he keeps my parents' life. I get that he keeps some of the most dearest friends I have and the loved ones I know in church but man will he keep me? Will he? How can you know that God will keep you? Especially when there are three opponents out to convince you that he won't, according to this passage. There are three <coughs> opponents in this passage that are out to tell you and convince you that he will not keep you. What's the first one? The world. We saw that in verse 14, right? The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. We looked at that last night, right? Right? The world wants to set itself up as a what? An anti garden, a substitute garden. It can't deliver the goods. But if it can get you to believe it can deliver the goods, it's on its way to doing some real ravaging work in our life, right? The other thing is self keeping or sin or the flesh. That's illustrated with Judas in verse 12, right? So that's opponent number two your own self. Your own flesh. Paul says that the, the flesh in Romans, that it is, it is committed in its default motive. If you are left to yourself, you will self-keep. If no one intervenes in your life, you and I will be self-keepers. We will try to be our own Savior. That's just the way we go. That's the way of sin. That's the way of the flesh. Okay, so that's opponent number two. But what's the third one? It's found in verse 15. This is really scary. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from uh, the evil one. According to the Bible, the evil one, all his effort is geared basically to doing one thing to you and me. And that's to get you to doubt that God will actually wants to keep you. If he can get you, To doubt that God wills and desires and is passionate to keep you. He just separated you like a wounded animal from a pack, and He's a lion and He'll tear you to pieces. How does the evil one do it? What's his strategy? What's his number one weapon of choice? And and I'm here to tell you it's scarier than a conjuring-like encounter. Anybody see that movie? That's a scary movie. It's scarier than that. It's scarier than witch doctors channeling demons. It's scarier than weird noises and stuff moving at your house late at night. It's scarier than dolls named Annabelle and creepy clowns. This strategy is the scariest strategy on the planet. This strategy brings down kingdoms. It brings down families. It brings down... Lives It brings down churches. It brings down communities. What is the strategy? The evil one's scariest weapon is to accuse you and condemn you. His most, his most lethal weapon in his arsenal is to <laughs> accuse you and condemn you. And if he can get that in your gut and in your heart he wins he does stuff like this dude you're so evil how could you think that how could you feel that how could you do that you're worthless you're a loser you're worse than others and you know it no one likes you you don't like you how could God like you You know you're on trial to justify your existence. You're on trial to justify your existence before God. You're on trial to justify your existence before others. You're on trial to justify your existence before yourself. And you failed. You're a loser. You're a failure. You deserve the anger that you've gotten in your life, you deserve the abuse, you deserve the failure. You deserve that no one likes you. You deserve that you feel all alone. You don't deserve to be loved. You don't deserve to be accepted. You don't deserve to have good things happen to you. You don't deserve to be blessed. Accusation and condemnation brings down kingdoms, it topples world powers. It destroys families, and marriages, and lives, and parents and children, relationships. And it's the number one weapon of choice. Oh, Father, keep them from the evil one. I want you to look at verse 11b again. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. Did you get it? Okay, so we got awe, now we're moving into intimacy. We got holy, now we got father. Notice that what Jesus is saying and addressing God this way, he's saying God is your father, God is not your accuser. God is not your condemner. God is your father. All your accusation and all your condemnation was released on Jesus on the cross. Jesus took every drop of every legitimate accusation and condemnation in your life right now, in the present, in your life that in the past, and what you will have in the future. And he took it upon himself and crushed it and absorbed it. And Paul in Romans says it was such an unbelievable... <laughs> Accusation absorbing power at the cross, a condemnation absorbing power that there's nothing left. It's all spent. It's been exhausted. There's now no more accusation on you. There's now no more condemnation on you. This this is the kind of life you lead. You live a condemnation-free life right now. You live an accusation-free life right now. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. God is your father. He is never, ever, ever your accuser. So you are freed by your father. Knowing God is getting awe and knowing God is growing in intimacy. It's getting the fact that God is holy and he's the only one that keeps you. You don't keep you. And it's getting the fact that God is so intimate and so close that he wants you and he calls himself your father and he's never an accuser. Ever. You are freed. The last words in Jesus' prayer are even more intimate. You look at verse 26, "I made them know I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known." That, here's the goal. When I notice that Jesus again, He's the one that makes God's name known to you. You want to grow in the knowledge of God? It's not by you climbing up and getting it. It's by Jesus coming down and giving it to you. It's still always of grace. It's an ancient grace, and it's a present grace, and it's a future grace. It's always grace, Jesus is saying. But notice that the central to the name of God, this is what Jesus is praying, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same love that God has for Jesus, he wants you to know that he has that same kind of love for you. All right, no sooner did I say those words, I quit, I can't do this anymore, that I sensed someone was standing next to me. He put his arm on my shoulder, and I realized it was my dad. And he said, um, well, first he he didn't say anything. He just put his arm on me. And you have to understand that this is now in front of everybody. In a state tournament, you got the whole state there. I just got beat in the worst way possible in front of everybody. And for my dad to get out of the stands and to walk over across the whole auditorium in front of everybody and put his hand on a loser, a failure, and identify himself with a loser, a failure. And then he says, you're okay, tiger. You're a state champion in my book. You'll get them one day. And somewhere, somewhere deep inside where you live or you die, a fire started burning. And I said, yeah, dad. One day I'll get them back. One day I'll be that state champion. Awe is about getting the fact that God keeps you. You don't keep yourself. So feel the awe. Feel the awe that you have a God that keeps you. You don't have to exhaust yourself and live an anxious life trying to do the impossible. Which is keep your life. Feel that awe. And then know that you have a God that keeps you because He's your father, He's not your accuser.
1: Feel that intimacy.